Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the city of Findlay has hired a consulting firm to assist in formulating a strategic plan for the next decade or more. It's not the first such effort, so what do local officials hope will come of this one? Also this morning, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown discusses what he sees as Ohio's priorities and the Democrats' massive infrastructure and social spending bills. In our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, Are You Afraid of Things That Go Bump in the Night? Author James Willis talks about his big book of Ohio ghost stories. And we have some easy weekend DIY projects that can give your home a bright new look without breaking the bank. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, October 28th, 2021. Among the first things you need to know to get your Thursday morning started, you are not as smart as you think you are. It seems that using Google to answer all of our questions is making us think that we are actually more intelligent than we truly are. This is according to research at the University of Texas. It says, though humans have long relied on external knowledge sources... Think looking things up in the encyclopedia. Online search has made the break between internal thought and external information faster and more seamless, making it harder for us to tell what came from our own brains and what we are getting from another source. Hmm. In addition, the process of searching Google is a lot like searching our own memories, which can cause people to confuse information found online with information in their own head the experts say this all suggests that we should be careful as this could make us believe that we are smarter than we really are which could lead us to rely on our own knowledge in situations where we really shouldn't and it could even make us more entrenched in our views things like science and politics The lead researcher of the study Adrian Ward adds that when we immediately jump to Google we don't We don't do the remembering. We're not exercising those memory muscles. Kind of interesting. That's just what you want to hear first thing in the morning. You're not as smart as you think you are. Turns out. Um, This is uh, interesting. The pandemic is playing a bigger role in the dictionary. New words added to the Merriam-Webster. Ghost kitchen. Those are the... uh, Fast food restaurants, primarily fast food restaurants that are delivery only. They don't actually have a restaurant. They don't have a storefront. They don't have a location where you can walk in and sit down to a meal or even in some cases you can't even drive through. They are strictly uh, ordering to go, meaning they don't have to have any sort of physical location. They're ghost kitchens. Curbside delivery is a new term in the dictionary. That's not new to the pandemic, is it? Curbside delivery? I mean, it's certainly become more prevalent, but I can't believe that wasn't in the dictionary before. That's what it says. Vaccine passport is now in the Merriam-Webster. And super spreader, the new terms in the dictionary. In all, 455 new words and phrases this year have been added Some of the others, not necessarily related to the pandemic, include air fryer, wiener roast, (laughs) dad bod, 
uh, fourth trimester and doorbell camera. New words in the dictionary. One of the most talked about uh, is flutter nutter. Which, for those who don't know, is a sandwich made with peanut butter and marshmallow cream. So it's a foodie term. Flutter nutter. So there you go. Some of the uh, new words in the dictionary. By the way, speaking of ghost kitchens, uh, the new word in the dictionary, uh, McDonald's is teaming up with IBM in a strategic partnership to develop artificial intelligence technology to automate their drive-through lanes at the fast food giant. Under the deal announced Wednesday, IBM will will acquire McD Tech Labs, which has technology that uses AI to understand drive-through orders. So in other words, the next time you go to the drive-through, instead of speaking to another human being on the other side of the speaker, it would be it kind of like when you're on a website and uh, you're you're chatting with tech support, but you're really not chatting with a human being. It's a computer and algorithms and artificial intelligence and all of that. This would be much the same thing. The CEO of McDonald's, Chris Kempchinski said tests at a handful of restaurants in the Chicago area this summer showed substantial benefits to both customers and employees. But there is no word on when AI will start taking your order in the drive through lane nationally. I, does that make any difference to you? I don't know. I mean, there has been some pushback. You may have seen these, the the kiosks in McDonald's and other fast food restaurants where there's no longer a human taking your order where you go to the touch screen and you enter your order yourself and then they call your number when it's ready. Uh, So there's minimal interaction with other human beings and there has been some pushback uh, on that. So I don't know how an artificial intelligence order taker at the drive through window would go over. But it is interesting. People push back against that. They don't, a lot of people don't like the idea of not interacting with a human being to take your order. But at the same time, how often have we complained about order takers getting it wrong at fast food restaurants? So, yeah, can't win. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Some people are never happy. So, this is a really uh, interesting story that I saw on the uh, the Newswire. A New York art collective has announced it will be selling 1,000 Andy Warhol sketches for $250 each. Now, Andy Warhol's, an original Andy Warhol, usually goes for a lot more than $250. So here is the catch. Of the 1,000 sketches that are purportedly Andy Warhol's, 999 of them are elaborate forgeries. And the buyers know this going in. The Brooklyn-based collective MSCHF announced its Museum of Forgeries project involves a single Andy Warhol sketch and 999 copies made by a machine with artificially aged paper to match the original. They look virtually identical. And the real artwork 
was randomly mixed in with the forgeries. So one buyer will get the real deal and all the others will get the fakes. There is a reason why they are doing this. Daniel Greenberg is the chief revenue officer of the uh, art collective MSCHF, which if you look at it, spells out mischief. Uh, He says the sketch in question, and by the way, if you're wondering, is this thing worth anything? Yes, it was sold for more than $8,000 recently at a uh, Christie's auction house uh, auction. And the current, that was back in 2016, and the current value of the artwork is estimated to be about $20,000. So $250 for an original Andy Warhol worth twenty k is quite the deal if you're the lucky one to get it. And they also point out that the copies, the duplicates themselves, are not necessarily worthless. They're very good forgeries, and they would probably go for about $250 on the open market uh, knowing for someone who knew that it was a, a copy of the original. So there's nobody's really being cheated out of this. Just one person is going to get uh, a bonus of the original. The website, their website says the uh, project is aimed at making a statement about famous works of art only being accessible to the wealthy. Okay. I don't know. I just thought that was, uh, was kind of interesting. You're an art lover. Interested in that. And uh, one other item here among the first things you need to know this morning. Halloween is coming up at the Halloween parade earlier this week. Trick or treat this weekend. Maybe this weekend you're going to a costume party. Take a moment and think about what could possibly be the worst Halloween costume you have ever seen. The worst Halloween costume. In Great Britain, a store named Kids Corner... It's a children's toy store is selling Gestapo uniforms as <laughs> Halloween costumes. That's right. Your kid could dress up like Nazi Germany's secret police <laughs> as a Halloween costume. <laughs> the secret police of Nazi Germany. The outfit comes with a red armband and runs $75, obviously selling a Nazi uniform as a Halloween costume is not going over too well. Uh, Some are saying this costume crosses too many lines. (laughs) Not just one line, this crosses a number of lines. All at the same time, the owner of the store, Melvin Smedley, now doesn't that sound like a British store owner? Melvin Smedley. Uh, He argues that the costume teaches history and says while he understands the criticism, he asks, where do you draw the line? Because someone somewhere will always be offended. I I understand the point you're making, sir, but uh, this is where you draw the line. Dressing kids up as Nazis. That's that should be a pretty clear line. (laughs) That should be a pretty clear line uh, that should be obvious, I would think. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a little much. Uh, I I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what you what you're thinking about. Uh, <laughs> somebody is always offended by by something, but that's a pretty clear line. We don't dress our kids up as Nazis. Can we all can we all agree on that? Can we at least all agree on that? There you go. 
Uh, some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Dimchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly to mostly cloudy today with a high of 64. Showers move in tonight, a low of 53. Drivers are being reminded that nearly half of all deer-related traffic crashes in Ohio happen this time of year. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources says deer become very active from late October through November due in large part to the fall breeding season. The Ohio State Highway Patrol says since 2016, there have been more than 100,000 deer-related crashes on Ohio roadways, and in those crashes, 28 people were killed. Drivers are encouraged to use extra caution, especially at dawn and dusk when deer are more active. And if a collision with a deer is unavoidable, drivers should brake firmly and avoid swerving because that could cause an even worse crash. A stock trader from northwest Ohio has been arrested on charges that he repeatedly lied to more than 70,000 Twitter followers to earn more than $1 million illegally. Stephen Gallagher of Mommy was charged in New York federal court with securities fraud, wire fraud, and market manipulation. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams says Gallagher put a new spin on old-school boiler room tactics. Williams calls it a social media pump-and-dump scheme, which involves knowingly lying about the outlook of a given stock to falsely inflate its value, then selling one's own shares to make a profit before the stock loses its value again. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. The city of Findlay is informing residents that postal delays may affect delivery and payment of water and sewer bills. To avoid delays in receiving billing statements and possible late fees, the city is urging people to consider enrolling in the many ways to receive and pay their bills. Get more details on our website. The fifth-ranked Ohio State football Buckeyes are favored by 18.5 points over Penn State when the two Big Ten teams meet this weekend. Head coach Ryan Day says he's expecting a really tough game. They're you know, one of the better defenses in the country, in my opinion. And there's a lot that goes into that. I think it's scheme. I think it's coaching. But they have really good personnel as well. The Buckeyes are coming off a dominating 54-7 win at Indiana. They host the Nittany Lions at the Shoe on Saturday night. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Now our cover story this morning... The city of Findlay has hired a consulting firm to assist in formulating a strategic plan for the next decade or more. Findlay Mayor Christina Mern joins us to talk about that. First of all, Mayor Mern, thanks for uh, dropping by. This is not the the first time something like this, uh, a project like this has been undertaken, a strategic plan. As a matter of fact, it seems like uh, every administration has uh, this <laughs> on their uh, agenda uh, all the way back to, I remember talking with uh, Mayor Iridi three or four mayors ago about yeah. a long-term strategic plan. So let me preface the question of what you hope to get out of this one by asking whatever has come of the others. Because we talk about these when they're launched, we don't always follow up. So what has come out of previous strategic plans? So, for example, you know, folks talk about the already kind of visioning, Mm Finley visioning process that occurred. And and there were some great amenities, really, that were identified. The, The Miracle Park, the Performing Arts Center, some of those items came out of that those discussions saying, um, hey, this is something that the community needs, something at once, and how can we make it happen and who can we bring to the table to, mm-hmm. to have that occur? Um, there was a lot of things in that plan that, that didn't happen as well, but I think that that plan was much broader in 
its scope. And it was kind of a community discussion about what mm-hmm. we want it to be and not necessarily as focused on the city government's role in that. And uh, of course, some of that got derailed by the flooding, uh, which definitely became all encompassing <laughs> uh, over the uh, ensuing decade plus. Uh, but it's interesting you mentioned things like the Miracle Park and the uh, Performing Arts Center, the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts, as it became. Because when these things happen, we don't always, again, go back and say, oh, yeah, we talked about that during the visioning plan. Because because as I said, it seems like every administration has uh, some sort of plan for a strategic plan, wants to lay this out. And so the logical question is, gee, we do this every few years. Why? It just seems like we're going through the motions over and over and over again. Um, So I believe that this is going to be much different than historical plans. So all the documents that I have seen for the city of Finley, you know, we have literally decades old plans that Mm -hmm. looked at the development of land use within Mm -hmm. the community. And we always have a land use plan that kind of says, here's what we think this area should be as it's developed. And Mm -hmm. then the visioning document is probably the most comprehensive strategic plan that has been developed in our kind of recent um, history. But again, that was a little bit different because it was looking at the broader community. And we definitely want to have those conversations and understand. But I think that they, many times in strategic plans, you folks don't have kind of measurable, actionable, identified outcomes. And that's really what I'm looking for. I believe that's what the committee is looking for is what is, what are the changes whether they be policies or ways that areas for the city to invest that are are finite enough that they're able to be accomplished. That's what uh, I was going to ask. So what do you hope will come out of this one? Um, I, I guess asking you for some examples <laughs> would be because that's the whole point of doing right. the, the plan. But do you have uh, areas uh, of focus uh, of particular interest that you will be looking particularly close at for this? I think we're really going in eyes wide open. Um, the planning next, the firm out of Columbus that we have hired. Um, I'm so excited because we unanimously supported them. And, you know, uh, the the auditor and I, when we both put our scores up there, we actually were the both two that gave them 100 points. So mm-hmm. we like all yeah. started laughing, you know, okay, see the auditor and the mayor Seems- do agree on things. Like, <laughs> okay, we, we can work together, guys. Um, you know, and we do, we get along fine. You know, we certainly disagree on some things and that's fine. That That's our jobs. Um, but I think it's really, we're, we're hoping that they look at our, processes um, for, you know, development, or are there things that we can be doing differently within our policies to help support different things? Um, How are we maintaining our infrastructure? I think it's really about, I think we have a lot of pieces of the puzzle, in my opinion, from our land use plan, um, you know, kind of our development plans, the old um, Hancock handlebars, trails, master plan, the parks, um, strategic hmm. plan all of these do- different documents and what i'm really hoping occurs is that we bring them together and are able to kind of layer them and prioritize the different pieces of that because many times we kind of half look at that and i, I think there's a lot of opportunity to really focus and invest in those areas to to kind of be a catalytic investment from government 
to spur the community. So using the puzzle analogy, it's like you open the box and all of the pieces are there, but you don't have a finished picture. They're all just kind of jumbled together. That's kind of where we are as opposed, so you're hoping to put the puzzle together. Correct. Uh, Is that why it was important to uh, go outside the community to hire a a firm to sort of facilitate this? Because that's the the next question. Why not do this in-house? Yeah, so I think it really was we felt like it was important not just for like someone within city government to do this, but somebody who has experience doing it with many other communities and knows the questions to ask that we may not even think about. Mm. So we, you know, we had when we put out the call, it was and anybody and everybody feel free to apply to this. And we had ten different firms that all were fantastic applying. So we narrowed it down to four super strong firms that then came in and presented. And we were able to narrow it down and. I felt very comfortable with really any of them. But I think being able to have somebody who has done this and worked with other communities and understands how they could facilitate that, that's really important. And I also didn't want people to feel like there was any real bias because this is an outside firm that this is what they do. Mm-hmm. I don't want it just to be Mayor Mern's plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I want it to be the city well, of Finley's community plan. Yeah. That's the other uh, challenge because, again uh, – administrations change uh, mm-hmm. over the uh, over the course of years and uh again priorities can change you envision this as being something that will uh be- go beyond your particular administration that definitely that is yeah. my goal um what is the timeline for all of this yeah so we are in the final stages of getting a contract executed with right. planning next i would expect we'll have that completed in the next month i'll say give us a little extra time. And then we have a kickoff plan uh, meeting to talk to the consultant kind of about timeline and what does the community engagement look like. And I would expect that, you know, maybe in December, but unfortunately it may end up being early January where we start really doing kind of community engagement, just recognizing the holidays are a mm-hmm. little bit of a difficult time to get right. folks. And and then for completion, you hoping uh, when? At least in the next year. I would expect okay. it will be completed next year and it could be anywhere from, you know, six to 12 months we will uh, continue to uh, follow that by the way uh while we have you here trick-or-treat coming up yes uh, saturday right (laughs) yes it is saturday uh in the community uh you uh dressing up uh, um no probably what are you handing out (laughs) let me ask you this what are you handing out at your house Candy. Well, yeah, I know, but I, uh, yeah, I haven't bought it yet, so who knows? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, because uh, you know, I just wanted to, to know what. You give the, me the plug. I what, appreciate what that. kids could expect. You know, going I'm to typically giving out chocolate of some okay. sort, but right. also some sort of chocolate. Nerds, you okay. know, I get nerds are good. I get a combination yeah, of the sour and sweet. Okay, no candy corn. No, 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 I'm okay. not a candy corn person. Okay, so no candy corn at the mayor's house, so you don't have to <laughs> have to worry about that. And uh, also, speaking of uh, holidays, upcoming holidays, the city has put out uh, the request for uh, an evergreen to serve as the uh, city's uh, official Christmas tree. Correct, yes. So we had been kind of collecting a list of trees, but unfortunately none of them are going to be kind of what we need. So, mm-hmm. yes, if you have a, a Christmas tree, uh, looking, I think we're looking for a spruce, um, 25 to 35 
feet tall that we can come in that is not around utilities that's in a front yard easily accessible the city of finley will come in take that tree for you um, grade it out grind the stump and then come back and plant a tree if that's something you're interested in we would love the donation i cannot wait for christmas um <laughs> i can't believe we're even i can't yeah, believe have you been watching the hallmark channel uh, christmas movies already no uh, no oh, okay. i i'm All not right. i'm not so quite not. that i just love i love downtown and i love being able to see everybody together and the decorations and winter is not my favorite so it definitely helps bring me bring me some cheer after there that then go. i'm like all right winter can be done go away <laughs> we're on the same page there uh so uh, the link is up on our webpage. by the way more information about the uh, strategic planning process and if you know somebody with a tree you want to uh, donate to the uh, city for the official uh, se- uh, christmas tree this season mayor Mern, thanks very much for dropping thanks, by we Chris, appreciate it Democrats claim to be getting close on a final draft of their multi-trillion dollar social spending bill. Of course, everybody has their wish list of what should be included in that package. And joining us this morning is Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown to talk about what he sees as Ohio's priorities for that package. Senator, thank you very much for taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. Good to be back, Chris. Thank you. You were uh, recently in Cleveland with the Secretary of Labor pressing for more investment in Ohio manufacturing innovation. Why is that not a a bigger part of the so-called Build Back Better package? It would seem that that would be a natural fit, wouldn't it? Well, it is. It is part of that package, and it's part of a. It's part of infrastructure, bipartisan. It's also part of the, of a, of another bill we're working on to uh, the U.S. Competitive and Innovation Act. Um, so that we are we are addressing those issues. That's why I had the Secretary of Labor in Cleveland. Um, but in response to you, sort of your intro into into the show today, uh, some much of what this bill is about with the new president and the new Senate. I got a lot of those ideas at the Family Center in Fenley in my visit there, uh, I don't know, two, three, four months ago, mm-hmm. just sitting around the table listening to the needs of that community in terms of housing, in terms of the child tax credit, uh, in terms of, of, um, of child care, all the things that we have fallen short. And much of this Build Back Better and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan are addressing those issues that I saw in Fenley that day that I see around the state. You have said you would also uh, like Congress to go further on health care, building on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, how uh, hard will you push for that to be a part of the plan? And in what areas uh, are you looking to uh, expand or uh, build on that, as you said? Well, there would um, we, we need to extend with the Affordable Care Act, what we did in the American Rescue Plan earlier in the year. But the one big idea that that I've worked on for years that that everybody I know just about in Ohio thinks it's right is the drug is the is Medicare ought to be able to negotiate directly with the drug companies on drug prices. We've done that at the Veterans Administration for years. Uh, the VA pays half as much. Consumers pay half as much for their drugs um, through the VA because they use the the buying power of seven million veterans to negotiate price. We should do the same with Medicare, but unfortunately, uh, far too many members of the 
Senate. Uh, sorry to say this gently, but far too many members of the Senate are in pockets of the drug companies, and we still are one vote short or two votes short on making that happen. But that would be one of the most important consequential things we can do because the drug companies continue to rip off consumers. Drug prices continue to be way too high. Uh, drug companies make huge, huge profits at the expense of so many Medicare beneficiaries, uh, and it's um, it would just make such a difference. I mean, it's it's a vastly popular idea and program and proposal. I've worked on it for 15 years. We still, the drug companies still have too much influence in Congress. As a matter of fact, uh, recent polling suggests that that is one of the most popular provisions of that overarching Build Back Better uh, plan. But uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema, in in your own caucus, is uh, one of the votes that that is holding that that, up. that's, That's the mathematics of this. The Democratic president's for it. 49 Senate Democrats are for it. All 50 Senate Republicans are against it. We have one holdout, and we need – I mean, I, 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 I blame us because we can't get it done, but – Every single Republican, so I don't mean to be partisan, and I know I'm talking to a mostly Republican audience here, and that's fine, and I'm a Democrat, but I've, I've seen, I've watched here, and uh, the drug companies have such a hold on my Democratic colleague and such a hold on my, Repo- almost, it seems like, all of my Republican colleagues. So, so far, we're one vote short of getting that to happen. I'm still hopeful we can do it. The other big discussion uh, with this uh, package is how to pay for it, and there have been a number of uh, different ideas floated, uh, the latest being a tax on the ultra-rich. I'm assuming that that is uh, an idea that you would support, but uh, I'm guessing in your mind doesn't go far enough? Well, my my ultimate goal here is Four years ago, we, we've, we've never had a tax system that treats middle-class workers well, frankly, and working-class families well. Uh, so four years ago, it got worse because uh, Congress passed uh, passed, a t- passed President Trump's tax bill, and 70% of that tax benefit went to the richest 1% of people in the country. 70% went to the richest 1%. I want to make that fairer. One of the things we've done is the child tax credit. 92% of Ohio families with children benefit from it. Um, it's it's two hundred fifty or three hundred dollars a month, depending per child, depending on the age of your children. Uh, then we also um, are trying to pass this bill with stock buy with taxing stock buybacks and all the things that we see corporate right. executives doing. I mean, what what we've seen, as, as you know, what we've seen in the last many years, Chris, is profits have gone up for companies. The stock market's on fire. Corporate executive compensation has gone through the roof, yet workers' wages have been flat. One of the reasons for that is a tax system where the rich pay so very little. Uh, you know, the, the wealthiest people pay a smaller percentage of their of their tax and uh, taxes than than a firefighter or a nurse in Genera or Finley or Fostoria, and something's not right about that. And I want I will do everything I can in this bill to make that system fairer, so the, that, that that the wealthiest people in this country should pay their fair share. Period. The bottom line is that this uh, uh, social spending bill, the Build Back Better uh, package, is tied to that bipartisan hard infrastructure bill and. And highway funding expires this week. You need to get a vote on the bipartisan bill, uh, which it appears you can't get without a deal on the reconciliation package. Is there any chance that this gets done this month or are we still going to be talking about this next month? 
Well, first of all, I, I, I reject your term social spending bill. This bill is an that's a tax cut. It's an investment in working families. It's an investment in child care. It's an investment in in um, in rural transit, which will help people on in Fostoria and Finley and Genera and Tiffin. So I, I, I don't. It's not a spending bill. It's an investment bill that's going to make a huge, huge difference in people's lives. So that'd be like calling the New Deal a social spending bill. It really was an investment in growing the middle class, and that's what this will do. The bill, yes, we will, direct answer to your question, this bill will be signed into law, both these bills, by Thanksgiving by President Biden. All right, we will uh, mark that down. Again, uh, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown with us uh, this morning. Senator Brown, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for the lively interview always. Thanks, Chris. Our Throwback Thursday segment this morning. We go back eight years for this one this morning because this is certainly the time of year for ghost stories. Back in October of 2013, we spoke with author James Willis about his Big Book of Ohio Ghost Stories. It is a collection of somewhere around a hundred fascinating and spooky stories from all over the Buckeye State. Some are tall tales. Some of them have some truth behind them, but they are all well-known and treasured links to the past in the communities from which they originate. From October of 2013, it is today's Throwback Thursday. I read a review that described this as the perfect compendium of all of the spookiest stories in Ohio ghost lore from the 19th century to today. It was actually fascinating to do it. I've been um, in Ohio since 1999 and it's been researching ghost lore and urban legends since then, and really wanted to kind of do a place that was kind of stockpiling all of them, so that kind of the, the aficionado of Ohio ghost stories kind of had a place, you know, one place where they could kind of dig out the book and flip through all the most popular um, ghost stories that were out there. So that was really the purpose of the book, and totally had a blast putting it together. Not just those stories that, uh, you know, have some, some truth to them or have some verified, you know, uh, facts behind it in your research, but also the folklore that's out there. Indeed, yeah. And that's really one of the, the magical things for me personally about ghost stories is that everybody has one, whether or not they actually believe in ghosts. They all have those stories that they like to share. And in all honesty, those ghost stories become sort of the part of our childhood and, and our upbringing, you know, we've all kind of you know, sat around on a dark and stormy night and shared ghost stories to give each other a chill, you know, not really caring, if you will, whether or not that story was true. So, I mean, ghost stories are all around us. Now, the ones that are the most intriguing to me are the ones that you start digging into and you find these little historical facts and nuggets that you're like, wow, there actually might be something to this particular story. So, it's interesting sort of dichotomy between those stories. And how many of the, the stories in the book fall into that category of, yeah, there might be some kernel of truth to this? Roughly between 50 and 75% of them. You know, it's for every story that I hear about, you know, Bloody Mary or a guy with a hook for an arm or something <laughs> like that, you still will come across a story where you're like, wow, an incident really did occur in this location. Or the, you know, this house is supposedly haunted by, uh, you know, a man with a mustache, for example. And you go and do the research and you find out, well, you know, that the owner who actually built the house many, many mm-hmm. years ago actually did have a mustache. So, yeah, those, mm-hmm. are, as I said, those are the little nuggets that when you come across them, you're like, wow, there, 
There might be something to this. Yeah, there are within the uh, the book some from uh, our area, Northwest Ohio, pretty well represented. Yeah, it's very interesting when you look at the ghost stories, kind of based on the region or the part of Ohio that you're in. You get different types of stories, you know. You, you, so it was kind of interesting, and that's why we divided the book up sort of by sections, you know, so that you can kind of flip it to a, a section that you live in currently or grew up in, and actually see if there's any. You know, long-standing ghost stories in your particular area. <laughs> so uh, probably folks will uh, read a story or two and say, "Hey, I know that story. I remember hearing that story when I was uh, when I was younger, or maybe something very similar." And that's you know, that's the other thing uh, that you know, every community. When I was growing up, we had the glowing tombstone in the uh, in the cemetery and in, in, yeah. in my hometown. And and what I've come to learn now, of course, when we were kids, that was pretty creepy. Now uh, we come to find out that every community has one of those. Every community has a, uh, a dead man's curve or uh, you know, a crybaby bridge, all of those things. Yeah, and, and again, but still, those are one of the things that fascinates me whenever I go out and sort of do presentations or book signings, and I have people come up to me and they tell me, well, you know, I thought I lived near the only crybaby bridge in Ohio. <laughs> I thought it was the real one. But yet it's very interesting to hear sort of their version of the story, mm-hmm. because in their version, they've kind of localized the story, so they take aspects so it sounds like their bridge is the real bridge, and that's what I actually find the most fascinating. I always say that, you know, really good ghost stories never die. They just sort of mutate every couple of years, so yeah. it's always interesting to hear how the real Crybaby Bridge story is, has changed and, and, and been localized all across the state, well, in the Midwest, really. And what is really fascinating to me is our fascination with these types of stories how you know regardless of how much truth there is to them whether uh, there may be a, a kernel of truth or maybe they are just tall tales that have been passed down from one generation to the next it is truly amazing our fascination with these it is indeed it, it's something that goes back many many years and, and i always tell people that regardless of whether or not the ghost stories that you're telling are true they do become part of your life and part of you know for most people, it's part of their childhood, it's part of their, you know, their, their bringing up, especially it's, when they start going to camp out, sure. and, you know, the teenagers, that, that, you know, that's part of, you know, our culture, and, and as I said, it becomes part of your childhood. And, and, and really, in some cases, uh, kind of part of the community. You have a favorite from the book? I mean, are there ones that stand out for you? There was actually a lot of them that stood out. The Moonville Tunnel is always a, a great story to me, because, you, again, you've got the idea of, you know, a a ghost that's involved with this old, but it's, it, it, it ties into the whole idea of a, a literal ghost town, Moonville, you know, no longer exists other than the tunnel and a small cemetery. So you've got this combination of history and ghost lore kind of, to, you know, coming together, which is just fascinating to me. Um, Mansfield Reformatory, I mean, the old abandoned oh, prison, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was really kind of creepy to be walking through. And then, you know, something a bit closer to you guys is Weaver's Passing, which is over near um, Arcadia, which has got this sort of spook light, again, tying in the idea of an old railroad guy who was uh, hit by the train there, walking alongside the tracks with his, his lantern. So, you know, those, again, the stories that you're... They're not just random ghost stories. You've got this little bit of history inside there that I think just adds a, just a right bit of flavor for a ghostly tale. 
Again, uh, James Willis talking about his big book of Ohio ghost stories, and this is certainly the time of year for that. From October of 2013, it is today's Throwback Thursday, and you can learn more about the book and uh, many other books that he has published since at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. And a follow-up in the broken news. You remember the story a few weeks ago about the guy in Pennsylvania uh, who was charged for theft uh, in a, a case, uh, here's the story. He goes to a convenience store, his local gas station, and goes to get a, a mountain uh, bottle of Mountain Dew, right? Uh, gets a uh, gets a drink. And when he gets up to the front counter, they're busy or the clerk is distracted or something, and he's kind of in a rush. So he pulls a couple of dollars uh, out of his pocket, pulls $2 out of his pocket, leaves it on the counter, and walks out the door, thinking, you know, bottle of pop was like a dollar seventy nine. So he takes out uh, two bucks, he puts it on the counter, and he figures uh, no big deal. The uh, clerk sees him. You know, okay. So there's uh, Joseph Sobolevsky is his uh, name. So he received a letter uh, then that he was being charged with grand theft because the problem was the two dollars didn't cover the tax. Uh, it actually was two dollars and forty three cents or something uh, of that that nature. And so and so he was arrested. This was back in August uh, for grand theft. And the worst part is he's got a record. He's already uh, been arrested in the past. And because of his record, it was classified as a third degree felony. Uh, he was facing. I don't know, like years behind bars for uh, for being 43 cents short on a soft drink at a convenience store. He was like, well, the follow up is he received a letter earlier this week notifying him that the charges have been dropped. Seven years behind bars was what he was uh, facing. Seven years behind bars. This, But the charges have now been dropped. Um, the. Uh, uh, it says uh, the less than 50 cent difference was enough for gas station staff to call police uh, due to his past record. He was arrested. It was classified as a third degree felony. Um, Mr. Sobolevsky says he is grateful that the charges have been dropped, but he doesn't feel that he was treated fairly uh, due to his past record. So he's going to uh, try and get some sort of compensation for this. But thank goodness the uh, charges have been been dropped. I mean... You know, okay, he's got a past record, and that's not good, but still, 43 cents, facing seven years behind bars. It's crazy. Uh, So I wanted to uh, follow up on uh, that story. Here is uh, today's broken news. There is, we have a uh, a rule uh, that when people die, it's, we generally don't laugh about it in the broken news, but every rule has an exception. Um, This is just so unusual that I had to bring it up. A man in Virginia who tried to give his brother a ride ended up accidentally killing him instead. Virginia State Police, a Carlton Stith, was driving along Route 1 yesterday when he saw Jerry Van Stith walking on the side of the road. Uh, His brother apparently had car trouble 
And so Carlton stopped his pickup truck to uh, give him a ride and began backing up and he ran over his brother. That's How does this happen? I mean, who does this happen to? That's crazy. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Sad story, but incredibly bizarre. Carlton was charged with improper backing. (laughs) Of all things to charges. Talk about adding insult to injury. He killed his brother, and he was charged with improper backing. That's bizarre. Uh, Let's see here. This is not very bright. Speaking of automobiles. Kevin Burns from uh, Michigan, and I'm not sure, oh, Ypsilanti, there it is, Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh, logged into a Zoom court hearing for a suspended license. He was uh, charged with driving on a suspended license, and uh, of course, uh, it was a virtual hearing. They're still doing Zoom hearings, I guess, in, uh, in courts in Michigan, so he logs into his uh, court hearing on Zoom on charges of driving under a suspended license, but he logged in while he was seated behind the wheel of his car. <laughs> Not too bright. Um, Judge Irene Washington of the District Court in Ypsilanti uh, asks Burns, are you driving right now? And he replies, uh, yeah. <laughs> the judge reminded him, you are suspended and you are in court for driving on a suspended license. And you are driving during your court hearing. (laughs) Let's just say that that did not end well for him. So don't do that. (laughs) Dumb criminal of the day. Uh, Police in Seattle have broken up an alleged trafficking ring involving the sale of hot Legos. According to the Seattle Police Department, in early September, an employee from a business uh, spotted a store that seemed to be stocked with many of the same Lego sets and electronics that had been shoplifted from his store. He thought, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, He called police, who then seized thousands of dollars worth of stolen merchandise, including 171 Lego sets using RFID tags and unique identification numbers. Uh, the uh, products were identified as originating in uh, the other person's store. Uh, sets valued at more than $2,000. Police determined the owner was knowingly trafficking in stolen goods. And on Friday, officers served a warrant at the illegal uh, storefront. The uh, store owner arrested and booked into the King County Jail. I'm just, th- I'm just thinking... What is that conversation like with your cellmates? What are you in for? I was selling hot Legos. <laughs> a Lego trafficking ring. <laughs> making Seattle police making making that city safe for Legos. That's good. And finally, in the <laughs> broken news this morning, try to explain this one to your boss. Some motorists in California uh, had to deal with traffic issues caused by Hundreds of rolls of toilet paper that had spilled onto a stretch of Interstate 880 in San Leonardo, uh, Leandro, San Leandro, California. <laughs> Hundreds of rolls of toilet paper <laughs> spilled all over the interstate. While it did slow traffic, authorities say it did not cause any major backups. No, any more major than backups usually are in California. 
Now, though, the question still remains of exactly how all of the toilet paper ended up covering the roadway. They don't know. Which is kind of bizarre. It just showed up randomly, apparently. What's all this toilet paper doing on the road? <laughs> there you go. That is uh, today's break. Can you imagine going to work and saying, I'm sorry, boss, that I wasn't here on time. I swear there was hundreds of rolls of toilet paper on the interstate. Uh, that is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less. Of Hancock County Veteran Services, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. The COVID-19 Delta variant. Just how dangerous is it? We continue to receive mixed signals. New mandates are expected. Businesses are forcing workers to get vaccinated, and some businesses are turning away unvaccinated customers. Is it an overreaction? What are the real stats? And are we less safe than we were a few weeks ago? It can be confusing, and that's why we continue to provide the information you need at 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Even as uh, employers brought their workers back into the office uh, after the pandemic lockdowns, the standard guidance for avoiding spread of COVID-19 in the workplace was uh, the direction uh, to uh, employees, if you're sick, stay home. Just don't come into work. If you're sick, don't uh, risk it. And that has uh, always been good advice uh, during cold and flu season, especially. If you're sick, stay home. You don't want to spread it uh, around the office. But it's advice that we have historically not heeded very well. And there was some hope, especially among health officials, that maybe COVID would change that once and for all. And that that would be uh, that employers would finally recognize and employees would finally recognize it doesn't do anyone any good for you to come into the office when you are sick. So the question is, is that guidance sticking? Well, it appears no. New survey says Americans are still reluctant to call in sick when they are sick. 68% in this survey say that they avoid calling in sick because they fear being taken to task by their employer, which is the same thing as it's always been. I feel that we're going to, uh, we fear retribution or we feel uh, fear uh, being criticized uh, for being lazy and not coming into work when we're really sick. This is a, a poll of 1,700 Americans commissioned by Theraflu, and it is a non-scientific poll, but the results are very interesting. Uh, employees of color uh, are 10% more likely to avoid using sick days for fear of being reprimanded by their employers. 55% of respondents say they are required to give their managers a reason for calling in sick. But 66%, two-thirds, feel their employers never believe them. Respondents say they have gone into work sick an average of three times even in the last year. Which, again, is very risky to do so, particularly during the pandemic. But uh, they've gone into work sick an average of three times in the last year. And 58% of those say they have been so sick they could barely get out of bed. But yet they still went to work. 63% of those polled say they are hesitant to stay out because they feel guilty that their co-workers will have to pick up the slack. Taking time off is also a financial strain for those who don't have paid sick leave. Uh, 64% of respondents cited that as a reason to uh, suck it up and go in, even though they shouldn't. 
And again, uh, employees of color, uh, black, Hispanic, relative, uh, are 14% and 8% respectively more likely to cite financial strain as a reason not to call in sick. Overall, two-thirds, 67% of respondents say they put their family's needs above their own, and that's why why they, they and that's why they work while sick rather than lose a day of pay. Again, we're still just you can't get over that hump. You know, I wonder how much of that is perception versus reality, but I suppose in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter. Well, you know, one thing about the pandemic, it meant we all spent a lot more time in our homes, probably thinking about all the things we'd like to change or fix or update. Well, this morning, we're going to give you the information and inspiration to get started with uh, husband and wife, home improvement and renovation experts, Mike and Hannah Morano. And you point out that when you're deciding what projects to tackle, uh, there are those that can really add some serious bang for the buck and not only not cost you an arm and a leg but don't require an extraordinary amount of skill to get done things you can do in a weekend exactly right yeah so kitchen and bath refreshes are the top two most popular projects that americans reported wanting to complete in a weekend and then garden work and yard work were the third most popular responses so what are some easy ways to update? We'll start in the kitchen because, uh, number one, we spend an awful lot of time in the kitchen. And, of course, we're coming up on the holiday season when everybody's going to be spending time in the kitchen. So what are some easy ways to uh, update your kitchen in a weekend? Yeah, so easiest and fastest way to update your kitchen is to swap out your kitchen faucet for a more modern style and finish. It's a really easy project to complete. It only takes a couple of hours, so it's great for even a DIY beginner. And it really does have a big impact on how you experience your kitchen every day. So popular features right now are the pull-down spout, which allows you to have a lot of flexibility in where you direct your spray. Right. And then also the touch feature, which allows you to touch it on and touch it off. You know, when my wife and I uh, swapped out our uh, kitchen faucet and then uh, added new hardware on the uh, cabinet doors that kind of matched the new faucet, it was amazing just how much of a difference that made. And like you said, a couple hours and uh, it's almost like you got a whole new kitchen. Right, exactly. So uh, bathrooms are another uh, big area where, again, a little DIY work can make a big difference. Yep, you bet. So it's actually surprisingly easy to swap out a toilet. And I bet you didn't know they actually make toilets nowadays that install with no tools, which is pretty awesome. Wow. And another added benefit is that it could, yeah, it could save you water if you're replacing an older model. Um, If you don't want to upgrade your toilet or you're just looking for another way to update your bathroom, the accessories would be a great place to start. So like the towel bars, towel rings, toilet paper holder, those are all very easy to install. They take very little time. And again, they have a big impact. So I would encourage you to go bold in those selections and feel free to mix and match metals too. And while you're doing that, maybe uh, give the uh, bathroom walls a fresh coat of paint, hang the new uh, fixtures, and boom, again, a weekend project that is uh, easy for anyone. You mentioned the exterior uh, parts of the home, and of course, we're coming into that season where that becomes a little bit uh, trickier, but what are some of the ways to spruce up uh, the outside of your home without turning this into a a huge project that's too big to handle. 
for sure. One project that Hannah and I recommend, uh, and we do on all of our projects, is replacing any old, outdated, tarnished fixtures on the exterior of your home with fresh ones. And this can really have a big, big impact on the curb appeal of your home. One little pro tip here, though, is we want to make sure that with the old fixture removing, it'll leave a behind a hole in the wall. And we want to make sure that the new fixture is going to totally cover that hole to make everything that much easier. Mm. And then also, Hannah and I have found that once you do get those new fixtures installed, Making sure you use the light bulbs that are soft white and 40 watt gives you that perfect like nighttime glow, makes your house look so welcoming from the street. Again, simple things that anyone can do. It's kind of interesting. It says here in my notes, and, and I want to uh, get uh, some insight here, that you did a, a, a survey about what people argue about the most when it comes to home improvement. What did you find and was it surprising to you at all? Yeah, for sure. The results actually were very surprising to us because what it found was that there's not a whole lot of arguing going on, <laughs> which is great because one of the few things I can guarantee in almost any home improvement project is that it's going to throw you a curveball or two along the way. And so if you're kind of anticipating this and you don't let it rattle you too much, and you keep moving forward, it can go a long way to helping you get that project across the finish line. The survey did find that in the rare instances that people were arguing, it was definitely about those expenses. So that wasn't very surprising. Yeah, uh, a- absolutely. So always uh, important to allow yourself a little wiggle room with respect to the cost, because like you said, uh, quite often you can uh, throw your curveball where you least expect it. Some really good stuff there. Again, uh, husband and wife, home remodelers, uh, real estate agents, and DIY enthusiasts, Mike and Hannah Morano with us uh, this morning. And where do we get more information uh, on some of these uh, easy home improvement projects? Sure. Everyone can head over to deltafaucet.com slash tips and tricks. Hannah and I have a whole list of projects we think you can complete in a weekend to have a big impact on your home. And also, we even include some tutorials to help you out along the way. Guys, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. And with that, we wrap up our podcast for today. And thanks once again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. A reminder that if you want more information about any of the items that we've talked about, any of the subjects we've talked about on the show, you can head to our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. You can also connect with us on social media. Shoot us an email if there's something you want to share. Sign up for our daily email newsletter and more. Again, goodmornings.net where you find all of that coming up tomorrow we'll preview the high school football playoffs which get started this weekend another collection of recipes from kyra's kitchen and lots more to finish up the week until tomorrow morning that is good mornings for this morning now that you've had a good morning go on out and make it a good day we'll catch you back here tomorrow